I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Hey guys, welcome once again to the Purple Patch Podcast, and I, as ever, am your host, Matt Dixon. This week... This is an episode for me. This is a coach's episode. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going toe-to-toe with a man and coach I've got great respect for, elite running coach Steve Magnus. Steve is one of endurance sports' great thinkers and someone who I keep finding myself getting drawn in for, for inspiration and learnings about all aspects of performance. Beyond contributing to the sport of track and field and producing many great results on the world stage, he's also really been instrumental in assisting performance-driven people find improved performance themselves through his great book, Peak Performance. We're going to talk more about that in the show. In our discussion, we talk about coaching, mindset, managing pain, athlete development, and even a little bit on the taboo subject of sports doping. I think the chance for me to share ideas across sports rather than just staying within my little box of triathlon, all in the pursuit of global performance gains, is both enjoyable but also inspiring. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. But before we talk to Steve, let's get wordy. We like the way he thinks, serious with the way let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. It's the dictionary word of the week. All right, guys, so what's the word of the week this week? Well, I should get going on the word of the week, shouldn't it? I need to take action. That's right. Just a couple of days ago, a friend of mine, and some would say maybe a mentor, said about this statement to me, work out what you can do now and get going. Don't seek perfection. Don't be overwhelmed by the size of the project. Take action. That was some recent advice. And the reason he was giving me that advice was I found myself getting confused and wondering what to focus on with all of the scope of the projects that make up the opening of the upcoming Purple Patch Center of Performance that we're going to launch in San Francisco towards the end of the year. It was timely advice. And I was having one of those moments of confusion. There was just so much to do that I ended up not doing anything. All I needed was to take a step back and take action on the aspects that I could control at the time. I had to lean into my understanding that I clearly should have, that this is a journey, and incremental gains accumulate over time, and that is the thing that makes magic happen. It is exactly the same in sports performance. Well, my immediate actions that I took moved me forward a couple of small aerials, but they enabled me to re-establish a mindset of control. It's exactly the same in sports. Often the challenge of the journey or the overwhelming feeling of making changes in habits can feel insurmountable. But this means that athletes become paralyzed. They end up not working with purpose. They get easily distracted. They even find themselves sometimes making excuses. And the most important thing is they don't focus on the basic things that can really help. I see so many people that are performance-driven and motivated but paralyzed. Where in the world do I start? Well, the key is take action. Simply get moving. 
move on the path that you need to get going on. It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be the finished product. Your power and pace and splits don't need to be great now. That is why you train. Your body composition doesn't need to be perfect now. That is why you train and focus on nutrition. Your technique doesn't need to be great now. That is why you train. What does need to occur is action. Stop planning, get moving. Start heading in the direction you want to go with a commitment to keep evolving and refining the habits, the technique, and the methods as you grow, as you learn, and as you improve. Take action, the word of the week this week. Don't wait until you have perfection. And I can't resist, as the famous Chinese proverb says, every journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So stop waiting for something to happen, get on the path you need to go on, and take action. Now let's get on with the meat and potatoes. Alright guys, so the meat and potatoes today is a good friend of mine and a peer from a different sport, I would say, Steve Magnus, coach. Steve, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So I'm going to give you a little bit of your bio and uh, the first is you're an author, an author of a, of a book that has uh, created a lot of notoriety over the last 18 months in the world of performance. It is called Peak Performance. You co-wrote it with a good friend of uh, of mine and obviously yours, Brad Stahlberg. You're also the coach of the University of Houston, and you're currently coaching 12 post-collegiate professional runners, uh, and also an adjunct professor of, professor of strength and conditioning at St. Mary's University. And um, when I, the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is that in many ways, we, we sort of met each other through Brad, but while you're in process of, of writing peak performance, and... Um, and I remember, I'll never forget you sort of actually coming to my house, sitting down, <laughs> tackling the subject of recovery. And, uh, and as we sort of went through this discussion, we just seemed to have so much symmetry on our mindset and our beliefs and philosophy of coaching, despite coming from really very different sports in many ways. Yeah, we did. It's, it's almost like, you know, you meet those people and you have those instant connections and you're like, oh man, you, like you stumbled upon the the same ideas, the same uh, beliefs that I did. Like this is amazing, and like that's I I can still remember sitting in your house um, at your table having that kind of feeling. Like oh man, like this guy gets it. And uh, a- anytime you can have those conversation with with other people who quote unquote get it, it's a it's a joy and it's a place where you can uh, grow as a coach. Well, it sounds like today is going to be a love fest. So let's, um, <laughs> so, 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 so I want to first start, let, I want to start by digging into your background a little bit and, and much of this because I don't know some of this. So, I, so I'd love to know, let's go all the way back where, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, your schooling, your education, things on that line to start. Sure. So I grew up in Houston, Texas living in the heat and humidity and I I think from a sporting side like sports was always part of my life like I grew up playing soccer mostly but also baseball dabbled in basketball dabbled in hockey like I tried every sport possible and um, for much of my youth I thought soccer was was the ticket I mean I played on 
we called them select teams, so like travel teams, and was was a good athlete. But the reality was I was good mostly because I was faster than everybody else, right? And and could run around and have good endurance. And um, but I didn't realize that at the time. I remember in elementary school, I think it was in fifth grade, and they had like this school record for the mile. And I missed it by, you know, a handful of seconds. And they asked if I like wanted to actually train and try again in a couple of weeks. And at first I said yes. And then I went out the next day and said, okay, like, yeah, I should train for this. And this is a is a fifth, you know, fifth grade person. So I don't know, 10, 11 years old, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went out and said, okay, to train, I best I, I better run a mile. So I just went out and ran a mile as hard as I could got done with this and said, oh my gosh, like this sport sucks. Like I'm not going to train for this. And just went back the next day to my PE teacher and said like, yeah, no, I don't want another shot. This running thing, like this is tough work. I'm going to go back to playing soccer. So that kind of really dominated my life until my freshman year in high school, I went out for the cross country team because of a older family friend who said like, Hey, I know you're good at running. I know you ran track in high school. You should come out and train with me some in the summer. Uh, first run I ever did. I ran three miles, which was, you know, two miles further than I'd ever did puked and, and kind of walked jogged home. So again, that was kind of my introduction to running. But the, but the funny thing is like, I got really good, really fast during cross country season and uh, in high school in Texas, soccer is a spring sport. So it started in like February and March where I plan to try out for the team. Well, the end of uh, end of my freshman year cross country season in, in November, December, my coach, my cross country coach at the time pulls me aside and says, hey, like you don't need to play soccer. You need to run. And if you focus on running like you can be, you know, one of the best athletes runners we've had. Uh, come through this school and at the point at that point in my life I didn't know what that meant but I said like here's this person of authority who like has you know coached some good athletes and is a good was a good athlete themselves and he's telling me I can be you know great at something so I'm going to listen to him and that began my uh my background in the world of running and it and it evolved to coming out of high school to get I mean give us you hate to gloat, but I'm going to ask you to gloat. So, so how did you come out of high school? What sort of runner were you and what, what was the level that you came out? Yeah. So out of high school, I was uh, the year I graduated, I was the top American high school miler in the country. I ran a four or one mile. Uh, as I said, was ranked number one in the country, um, you know, had a lot of success. So um, I was a really good runner I think at that time it's slower now but at that time like the sixth fastest high school miler in in U.S. history so I was really good and you know that shaped my thinking I came from not thinking I'd ever was going to be a runner to being like obsessed with it and and in a lot of ways kind of obsessed in a bad way so uh from there I went on to university uh went to Rice University for two years uh didn't quite fit uh, well in terms of uh, the training and all that stuff and academics and transferred graduated from University of Houston with my undergrad and just like really went from being a phenom to to burning out like my college career can be summarized by 
five years of beating my um, myself into the ground essentially on a training side and just, you know, not running as well as I thought I should have or probably could have. And what, what were you studying through there? What did you come out as your degree? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, my first probably three years of, of school, I didn't care. And I just like signed up for the classes that like our, you know, our guidance counselor told me to do. Like I just wanted a degree because I knew it was important. My my family really pushed academics, but I had no care whatsoever. So I think those first three years, I'm not even sure I I read a textbook. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I was naturally smart enough to make my way through it. But really, as my own struggles and running kind of took place, like my wanting to understand why and my my you know desire to learn increased. So I came out with a uh, undergrad in exercise science, and by the end of graduating, like I'd really found a love of of you know education and reading um, to a large degree. And, and you went on to do your masters. Was that in exercise science or, or yeah, related yeah. as well? Yeah, it was. And it it was kind of a joint of like, I wanted to still kind of explore running to a degree. And it gave me an excuse to still train without getting a real job. And it was it became an interest where I, I wanted to understand things. So I got a, a master's from George Mason University, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia and exercise science as well. So I'm starting to work out why we got along at the kitchen table because my story summed up in the sentence was very good coming out of high school, come to the States, amplify my training, don't get much faster while doing a degree in exercise physiology. So, <laughs> so I think it sounds parallel sports, swimming and running, pretty, pretty similar. Now, uh, coaches, uh, as you're through your athletic career, because I'm going to ask you about when you sort of really became engaged or, or yeah. the catalyst behind you becoming a coach, a professional coach, but did, did you have any great coaching mentors as you went through either high school or college that you, you drew on and, and really helped you? Yeah, I did. You know, I was very fortunate to have a lot of coaches who cared, number one. Um, and, and although like we made mistakes along the way, obviously, um, I, I think what it always came back to is that like every coach I had practically from high school through college was someone who actually cared about me as a person and, and cared about uh, my well-being. Um, what ultimately kind of hurt my own performance was probably my hard headedness and like stubbornness to train myself into the ground. But it, it started off with my my high school coach, Gerald Stewart, who um, when I got into high school was a had coached practically every event and track except for long distance. And um, he just ended up after, you know, 25 years of coaching high school, taking over the cross country team when I got in. And so it became a learning process where like we'd have this almost peer relationship where he'd ask me, you know, what I thought we should do or like what I thought of workouts and, um, you know, what I thought of the training. And then we'd have this dialogue. So it was very much a colleague almost uh, as much as, you know, a 15, 16 year old and a you know, 50 year old can have, mm -hmm. but very much a colleague based approach versus a, like, I'm a drill sergeant, I'm going to tell you. And then at, at, at the same time, I was fortunate enough to have uh, Tom Telez as a, a mentor who started helping me out with like, running form and mechanics and other stuff when I was 17 years old. And for those who don't know, like, Telez was 
famous for coaching sprint athletes like Carl Lewis and Leroy Burrell and a host of other like Olympic medalist caliber athletes. So just to, you know, spend time with someone who had that wealth of knowledge and was willing to hand it over um, was incredible. And those two coaches really shaped what my expectations of a, a of a coach were and shaped you know ultimately what i would do with my life and you know it sounds like from that story that you were always sort of an, an active participant in your own sport which is a great thing for an athlete to be and maybe that was the the birth of you falling in love with coaching what was the catalyst for you to sort of becoming a coach yeah i, I think like right there it was always implanted Right. And it was always, you know, I actually I remember Coach Deleuze telling my parents once, because when when I was in high school, you know, you take all these college visits and I I visit Cornell University. So Ivy League and uh, <laughs> and Coach Deleuze told my parents was like, why is he going to Ivy League? Like he's obviously going to become a coach. Like that's what this kid's going to do. And like I didn't know it at the time. And my parents told me afterwards and you know, years later. And I think that held true. And I think you could see that because I was always, always part of that, uh, that equation and always had that curiosity towards like helping myself and helping others, um, to do so. So, you know, I think that the driver for me to coach kind of started in that era of like, of having that peer relationship with others. But then I think it, it, it kind of developed out of my own failures as a co- as an athlete in the sense that like I knew and saw what it was like to go through struggles and not an, not not know why. So like I wanted to make sure that like friends, you know, athletes, other people didn't have to go through the same things that I did. Sure. And it, it seems like, I mean, I was going to say, what attributes did you help? sort of frame your coaching and your, your personal attributes, but it's pretty clear coming out of that. And that fast forward without actually being next to you day to day, you're clearly a collaborative focus coach rather than a, uh, a dictator. <laughs> Would that be accurate? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, that that's clear. Right. And I think, you know, you can argue over what, what method is most valid and works for people. But I think, you know, I'd be curious to hear your opinions on this, but yeah, I think especially when you're working with really good athletes, w- near world class athletes, like it, it's their journey, right? It's not it's not my journey. Like I'm not the I'm not the overbearing parent who's like trying to live my life through the athletes. Like it's their their journey, and they have to shape it how they want. And like we're just partners along the way to like help give them the guidance, the understanding, the knowledge to get the most out of themselves. It's interesting you say that when, when an athlete comes to me and asks for coaching, uh, one of the first things that I have them do, no matter how long, how well we sort of get along and it feels, feels like a fit, uh, a fit. I, I actually ask them to go away and talk to other coaches if they have not yet. I think it's really important for an athlete to go and interview a wide range of coaches because ultimately exactly what you said, it is their journey and you and I are going to get to coach many athletes as we go through our years as a coach, but each athlete will only have one journey. So it's really important not to recruit an athlete, but to actually ensure the athlete is set up with the right coach for them. Yeah, I, I think that's a brilliant point. That's a really good idea. I might I might steal that one. Um, 
from you. And it's interesting because then what happens is when the athlete does do their homework, does get a broad range, if and when then we are a right fit, there's no looking over the fence. It's okay. The partnership is cemented from the start. Now let's build it. And, uh, and that tends to be a really effective way to create trust and longevity, even right at the start. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I think like if you look at what matters the most or what matters a lot, it's that buy-in component, right? And it's having that trust that, you know, I'm going to do what's best for them and they're going to, you know, follow the guidelines and like, um, you know, have that belief in the, in what we're doing to reach that performance level. And I think a lot of times what we get it wrong on the coaching side of, of like seeing, oh my gosh, this athlete's like run this far or, or gotten this best at a, at a world championships. And we almost get like greedy to the talent, right? Yep. And we think, oh, they've got the talent. But it's that buy-in component and that fit component where like I don't, I don't want to have to worry if like, you know, we do this workout, is this athlete now going to be looking over his shoulder and comparing it to, you know, such and such group that, you know, just posted this workout on Instagram and thinking like, oh, why didn't we do that? Like when you're in that situation, it doesn't work. It's it's set up for sale. Well, well let's get into it a little bit. What, what do you believe an athlete needs to be successful at a, at a global level? If you think about, and this, I think this spans, this question spans all levels. You, you stray towards the more elite or developing elite as well. But when you think about success of an athlete, what are the components that you feel like are critical for them to be successful? Yeah, I think a lot of them start with what we just talked about. I think buy in, able to buy into pro, to whatever program you're doing and like having this belief that like that is going to take you to the best. You know, one of my good friends um, and c- coach Danny Mackey always uses the example of Nick Simmons, who's, you know, world championship medalist in 800, um, had won, won U.S. championships under three different coaches, and one of them being Danny. And Danny always says, like, wh- when he switched to me as a coach, like, he believed that whatever we were doing – once I explained it to him and we got on the same page, he believed whatever we were doing was the best training in the world, right? It didn't matter that it was different from, you know, the coach he'd done previous. Like he was convinced that like he had the, had the secret sauce and was, uh, was going to be in peak performance or like peak conditioning when it came to race day. So I think it's like that ability to like trust in what you're doing and, and like get to the top. I think the other thing that you, see a lot in in elite athletes is um is not only that belief but like that that almost vulnerability and trust to understand like that it's a journey and a process right Mm -hmm. and what what i mean by that is like they're not gonna they're not gonna panic and freak out the first time something goes wrong right they're gonna take that failure and they're gonna they're gonna say okay like that didn't go according to plan but like what's the takeaway what's going to come away from it they're not going to go oh my gosh my life is ending because i was aiming for top five at the world champs and i didn't make the final right it's going to be okay like what's the process from here to get better and i think what i've seen the athletes who don't make it is they almost have this like overreaction to like any sort of stress or failure and they just can't can't cope with it. 
And I think that's critical in the coaching relationship because as you, as you talk about the trust and the collaboration, you mentioned something about Nick there. Once he understood what the met, what, what the meaning behind the session with, and I think that's really important for an athlete. It's not the magic prescription of us, the coaches, but it's the partnership and the athlete actually understanding why they're doing something that is, that is so, so critical. And then as you say, uh, failure can come out of that. So obstacles, let's call it, that can come out of it, whether it's, you know, fifth rather than the first at a world championship or, or just not having a, a great day or a great workout period. It's the, that's not the, the bomb that gets thrown into the relationship because that is a part of the journey, as you call it. But it's, you know, it's, it's actually a continuing partnership to keep finding what works and what the magic recipe ultimately is in many ways. Exactly. And that's why I think it's like it's those little conversations that you have with your athlete um, that build that component. And I'd be curious to understand what you do after uh, after embracing an obstacle. But I think like as I've grown as a coach, I think paying attention to like how I frame and understand and, and reflect on good and bad performances and like what that process looks like with with an athlete is is incredibly important i think one of the things is being very careful with glorious praise as well uh mm-hmm. and you know so so i think there's the side of of managing struggle there's also a management i think which is tough for athletes bizarrely and it's also a word of caution for coaches which is to manage success as well and and if we only get excited when things are great and overexcited at that, we'll have a huge celebration. It, it, it creates these peak events that are that it, it makes the the struggles and the obstacles or the bad sessions sort of uh, challenging for the athlete to manage in many many ways. It, exactly. You know, my high school coach was one of the mentors I mentioned. I always put it as like, hey, you can't get too high on the high or too low on the lows and his point wasn't to like never be sad or never celebrate but his point was like if we have those big fluctuations like you talked about whether they're in dealing with setbacks or even dealing with success um then that that doesn't set us up to handle things well because if you if all we do is glorify the winning like or glorify the achievement of the goal then like what message does that send to the you know 90% of the time when we're not going to run a, a PB right because they're rare or they that we're not going to have a lights out race and i think you know we have to be very aware of the messages we're sending right what are we valuing when we give uh positive feedback or when we you know go nuts and go crazy in in terms of like celebrating our athlete or even the stuff on you know social media like people my college kids are great at at making me aware of this because they'll be aware if i only post things when someone like runs well or prs then 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 that signal that is being sent is that like oh like you're only valuable if you do something great which isn't isn't something that I want to send, right? No, exactly. No, I think that's a really important component. Well, let's dive into the running world as well. And uh, you're a running coach. I I have a, um, a lens on triathlon, obviously, and sort of overall endurance athletes. But I'd love to know your perspective when you look at 
at training runners, performing runners, what are the biggest mistakes that you see being made from athletes? Yeah, I think what it, I think the biggest mistake I, I see is the the kind of too much too soon or like um, component or like over emphasizing of one quality. And what I mean by both uh, too much too soon is pretty obvious. It's that they they think like, oh, I need to perform at this level. So we're going to jump from, you know, it platform a all the way to platform z right instead of making a nice gradual improvement and like gradually increasing the stress and i think the other component is like people start thinking that oh like this is the magic workout or you know i need to be able to do a six mile threshold run at this pace in order to run my race and the reality is like all the components matter they just matter to different degrees as we you know, at different periods of the year. So it's not that 400 meter repeats or mile repeats or a tempo run are magical. It's just they offer some sort of different stress to get us there. So I think like acknowledging that and understanding that is incredibly important. I think it is the too much too soon as well. The the giant leap. The other one I would add to that is we, we talked about obstacles a little bit. When people, for one reason or another, fall behind, and a great example is several athletes have had flu recently. We've had a big flu outbreak uh, this year. And I was just talking about this this morning. Catastrophe happens when you try and play catch-up too quickly. So even in a block of training, uh, it's it's a really bad thing to think, I'm behind by two weeks. I'm going to accelerate. Coming back from injury, how many times do we see repeated injury cycles or performance failure from athletes trying to get from A to B, whether it's the huge leap, you know, I need to get to where I need yeah. to get to as a performance, or it's just coming back from sickness where catastrophe happens so many times. Exactly. That's a good point. Because I think, you know, I look at training as like we can't force adaptation, right? We I can't force your way into improving in your 5K by 20 seconds, right? It's got to ha it's got to happen on my body's schedule. And that same thing applies, you know, if if you're sick, like I can't say, oh, man, we lost those two weeks. And now we have to make up for it. And it's like, no, we we are where we are. And like, we need to improve upon that. But like, we can't, we can't, we don't have a time machine. Like I can't go back and say, okay, like, here, throw all this work at it. And like, we'll get better. It doesn't work like that. No, exactly. Well, in, in that lens, with the let's go to the positive side and i'm really interested in habits so what are some of the the great supporting habits that you think help some of your athletes be successful mm, that's a good question you know what i think in habits i think the biggest thing is like we call it like living the runner lifestyle to a degree and that's not being like obsessive or obsessive compulsive on things but like understanding like what actually matters right mm -hmm. and then like giving that value so if if like you're training with a high degree of volume and intensity then what matters is recovering off of that so making sure you that you're getting the sleep making sure you're getting the recovery making sure you're like getting the nutrition like those things have a higher degree of value now so what i've seen with athletes who have done really well is they're not like obsessive compulsive on it but they know what to assign value to right they're not worried 
they're worried about getting nine hours of sleep or getting the nap versus like obsessing over should I eat like this recovery protein or this recovery protein, if that makes sense. It, it's 100%. I'll give you a, uh, a saying that, that is the heartbeat of sort of mindset and approach at Purple Patch, both in our pro squad and across our landscape of athletes. We always call it nailing the basics. And yeah. so it, it's it's an incredible it, it it's it's not sexy you don't sell it but 95% of success in my mind is getting the very basic stuff right and then you have the privilege of working on the incremental stuff of refining what what protein drink you're going to drink or whatever you might might say um so, so you're welcome to steal that, Steve, if you'd like. But uh, <laughs> I, I am. I'm going to steal a lot from this conversation. <laughs> I think that's like in in today's culture, like that is important, right? That is a key value message. You know, I'll never forget. I was talking to a won't name their name, but a, a professional sports team, and they were talking about their like post, you know, post game recovery and how how like they they needed this type of supplement and this type of supplement to get things done and like the timing was critical on when to get it and then they were scheduling like their return trips from the game to be like overnight flights right so they'd get their game done or or bus trips at you know game finishes at 9 p.m they'd go hop on a flight and be on a flight from you know midnight to 3 a.m and then get back and like well that you know, all that stuff you worried about, like right after the game doesn't really matter because you just killed everyone's sleep, you know? Exactly. <laughs> things like that, where it's just like, that is perfect. It's like nail the basics. Like you got to start there before we can worry about all this intricate stuff. There is a aligned with habits as well. There's sort of traits and, you know, I, I, and, I, and it's really sort of echoes what you just said that there's when you coach the great athletes, that the ones that, that there is an intuition there of, of value. And I'll give you an example. And it pains me to say this because I hate to say, I, I hate to say Jesse Thomas is one of my greats, but he, <laughs> it, the one thing that Jesse has by way of an example is, is a wonderful ability to focus on the important stuff. And we, we always talk about sort of not getting too, too granular on the exact pace or power, the exact level of intervals. And when you're out on the bike, sometimes terrain gets in the way of your ability to do the exact interval. You know, it might be appropriate to do three and a half minutes rather than four because suddenly you're on descent. Here's this wonderful ability to train to the rhythm intent, but not obsess. And I think that's one of the catalysts, one of the traits for him of understanding value are there other traits that you've seen with one of your some of your great athletes that you think always are are a common theme that sort of bubble up yeah that's a really good example i i think one of the things that i see a lot is they have this ability to almost like turn it on or turn it off and like put things behind them right so the the athletes who I've worked with who maybe didn't quite make it there, like if they had a bad interval session, right, they carry that with them for the next two, three, four, five, six days, right? And it just like in the back of their head, they're just still upset and, and worried about, oh, I didn't I didn't succeed in this session, right? And that success is defined by their expectations. Well, the the good ones that I've worked with, the really um, top notch ones were the ones who good or bad, like they kind of accepted it and then put it on, put it behind them and we're on to the next thing. So they weren't, 
you know, they weren't past focused. And in a lot of ways, they weren't entirely future focused where they're worried about, oh, I have this three weeks down the line. They were worried about like, okay, what 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 am I supposed to do right now in this workout in this moment? And like, let's worry about that. It doesn't matter if I, you know, ran a little slow last uh, last interval section session yesterday. It's like, okay, today's run is focused on recovery. So I'm going to do the best that I can and what I need to get out of that. And then tomorrow I'll worry about the next thing. And I think that ability to just kind of stay in that present and not carry things with you um, allows you to not only reach a high level, but probably more importantly, enjoy doing it for years to come. That, that that I think that's a really important last phrase. Enjoy doing it. It it, it prevents it from becoming shackles and uh, and a monkey on the back and this unnecessary laden of pressure on top of you because of this past failure mentality. Uh, I, I, remember I had coached an athlete for many, many years who, who just developed to becoming, a, I, I think, one of the best triathletes that we've ever had on the female side, Meredith Kessler. And she had a, a great a great saying, she'd have a workout. And if she completely tanked, she'd get out of the swimming pool. And she said, that was a web. And it was a, <laughs> why, why even bother? It just, yeah. But as soon as she was dressed and into her running clothes, it was completely removed from her psyche. I mean, a hundred percent, her ability to actually move on and focus even on the next workout that might have, might come right after the swim. Maybe the run's better. And that, that is an amazing quality that is very, very hard to actually teach. You can, you can, you can try and set up the structure, but that, I think that's a trait that is, is trainable, but a, a, a huge component of great performance, I would say. Um, yeah. Now, you wrote a book around peak performance, and it wasn't. Um, I highly encourage uh, listeners to to read the book; it's fantastic. In fact, we will be giving away a copy of the peak performance um, as a part of this podcast, Steve. But uh, although the listeners will have to earn it, details <laughs> on the outro. Uh, the um, The book is is not about running, and you you wrote this with uh, with Brad Storberg. And it's around peak performance across many, many disciplines, not just in sporting sense, but in sort of great, great performance across life. So staying on the topic of habits, when you were researching this book, you have this ingrained understanding of elite performance and habits and traits that you see in your own athletes. And now you go and explore it in the wider world. Were there key habits that you saw that were sort of coming up again and again and again across elite performers? Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the reasons we explored this topic in the book um, is that what we saw is that like performance is performance. <laughs> like it, it didn't matter really in, in terms of these habits and traits. It didn't really matter if I was preparing for the triathlon or if I was preparing to, you know, go sing in front of 50,000 people like these traits kept coming up. And a lot of them are the things that we talked about. And and in the book, we expand upon a lot in terms of like knowing what stress is and and knowing how to recover and knowing how to like prime themselves for performance and all these other good things. But, you know, the example I like to use when when discussing this is a drummer who um, is world class drummer, drummed with, you know, some of the best bands in in the world. And he, he takes us through his like warm up routine and he sits there and he's like, yeah, I, like first I go, you know, 
do some uh, aerobic kind of exercise and then some drills and then some arm swings and then like get my head in the right place. And then I go walk on stage and drum. Right. And I'm sitting here listening to him and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the exact thing that I do to get ready for 5k. And he's like, oh yeah, no, that's intentional. Like it's all about first getting my body in, in the right place and then getting my mind in the right place. And, and I think like, in exploring some of these things like that, I think that's what the the biggest lesson is and probably the biggest impact on my own coaching is that like performance is performance, right? And these things that maybe these athletes won't reach the elite level, but the ideas and concepts that I'm going to teach them as a coach are going to help them out in the business world or out, you know, with their next job or help them as doctors, whatever it is they're going to do. And I think that's probably a more valuable lesson than, than, you know, perhaps helping them at, you know, some, uh, elite level race. And I would, uh, I think you're spot on there. And the interesting thing is that, Within what, within our own world, so within the triathlon world, yourself in the running world, whatever the sport might be, I think one of the criticisms I would have or, or observations I would have is many people that are trying to become the best coach or the best athlete or the best participant in one of the endeavors, they tend to sit within their own sphere. And in fact, there's great understanding and learning that you can get across disciplines and, um, uh, and from people outside of your your specific sort of world that you live in, and it sounds like you you really that was really cemented in in for you as you sort of went through, along this journey of the book. A hundred percent. And you know, I, I'd be curious to hear how you've evolved, Matt. But if I if I just trace like my own reading list, right, uh, of books that I've read, going back from when I first started getting into coaching to now. Like you see that trend, right? When I first started to coach, like it was all running training books, like all of them. That was the only thing I read. And now if you look at my reading list, like it's a diverse range from, you know, all sorts of science books to psychology to biographies to whatever have you to looking at other sports, right? Like your books. Um, and I think that that kind of cements that point is that we should look for commonalities and similarities across these domains. And I think that's probably where we pick up more things because it, it sparks that curiosity to learn and like take some idea and bring it back into our own little world versus being stuck in our little bubble and never exploring beyond that. It, uh, spot on. And in fact, one of the things that's been really important for me as a development, as a coach, bizarrely, is uh, I'm very lucky that I tend to work. I, you know, one of the parts of my coaching world is I work with a lot of CEOs and executives. Mm -hmm. And so the business world, and you have these conversations and you start to understand them as people and, and you see their traits. Uh, and there, there's a reason I sort of had this little saying, I'm, I'm full of little sayings where you say, coach the... <laughs> Coach the CEOs like pros and the pros like CEOs. And uh, it's just that cross-pollination of alignment of performance that, that always occurs. And that, that for me as a coach, has been beyond the reading, and, and it is a broad range. I, I would add into mind Scandinavian crime thrillers, which have not helped me in coaching <laughs> whatsoever, but they help put me to sleep at night. Uh, but um, But it's also the conversations, and when I seek 
people to have conversations with. I more and more and more I go outside of sport and that's where I get my biggest lessons from. And then the important part is taking the elements and then applying them to how it's relevant to me and my sport. Yeah, that's, that, that's the skill sort of thing. Exactly. No, I think that's a great point. And I think like one of the things I mean, in, in writing this book and, and even having that conversation with you is like you get you get all these aha moments. You know, I remember sitting at the table there and I was like, ah, like you'd say something like, oh, that's brilliant. Like, great. And I'd write it down and then like go back a, a week or two later and say, OK, how am I going to apply this? And I think if I have any lesson for any coaches to take away what you just said is like. I have a saying that like coaching comes from conversation, right? It's, it's it's not necessarily all these books or all these like, you know, uh, maybe lectures we hear, but it's those conversations that like, you know, you and I are having right now where like, you know, I've got, I'm going to write down a couple of these things, which I already have and take them away. And they're going to have a direct impact on how I, how I coach. And um, if we don't have those conversations, if you're not seeking out people or doing interesting things, regardless of what they're doing interesting things in, then I think you're missing out on one, on that piece. And, and and if I can take the opportunity to add my preaching to coaches, it's not about the workouts. So I, I'm always bemused by coaches that really hide their workouts and are really unwilling to share and think that they have a magic solution. In fact, those are the coaches that you probably have less to learn from. It, it, by collaboration, by sharing, by putting your ideas out there and conversations, it not only will help you with the feedback and communication you have, but it will, it will raise the sport globally whatever the sports are in the world of performance. And um, and so if you are a coach, I, I, I'd really encourage you to seek conversations, as Steve says, but also be willing to share and share ideas because it's the only way that you can ultimately improve. 100%. I think that's such a valuable message. And that's why I love, um, you know, to listen to things like your podcast here is because like if we don't share, we're not going to grow as a profession. And like you like learning and understanding these things is going to make me better as a coach. Like, and if I don't share what I do, like you're not, or whoever's not going to become better. And I think that's, if we can raise the collective, um, you know, process of coaching, then we're in a much better spot than if we just sit here and hide everything we do and think like, Oh, I've got the secret sauce. Um, no one else knows how to do this. Well, that, that doesn't really help anybody. No, and 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 by the way, you don't have the secret sauce. <laughs> well, exactly, because <laughs> because it should always be evolving. And if you, whenever you think you've nailed it, it's time to retire from coaching. I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I want to ask you about two more, uh, two more big things. The yeah. um, uh, the first is actually metrics, uh, because there is. Uh, I would say particularly in triathlon because you have the addition of uh, of power meters and things like that. But in your sport as well, uh, since we've been coaching, there's been this ever-growing explosion of monitoring, feedback, and tracking. Uh, you know, whether it's heart rate monitors, obviously originally, but GPS, pace yeah. watches, uh, tracking training stress in in third-party apps, uh, and don't even get me going with sleep, etc., mm-hmm. etc. I'd love to hear your take, and I don't know your take on it, that the good and the bad of all this stuff. Yeah, you know, I think, 
I, I think I've evolved as a coach because I'm a, I'm a heavy science guy, right? And I love like geeking out on stuff. But at, as a coach, like what I see is that sometimes the monitoring like interferes the, with the process of growth and adaptation as an athlete. And what I mean by that is like, let's take sleep, for example. Okay, we all agree sleep is a great thing. It's, a, it's one of the best recovery things you can do. But what we've actually seen with some of the research is like if you monitor your sleep all the time, what happens is like you get stress and anxiety like leading into going to sleep because you know that like you're going to have it monitored, which is kind of crazy. Right. So we're self-sabotaging ourselves, um, self-sabotaging our sleep by like monitoring it um, and not getting the quality that we need. So I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing from the training metrics side is all these gadgets can can kind of interfere with uh, what you're trying to do. Like as as a coach who works with elite, but also developmental in terms of college athletes, what I've seen over the years is that because of reliance on GPS and other things like that, and I'm sure it's worse with you guys and power meters is that athletes are losing the ability to pay attention to the sensations coming from their own selves. So their internal feedback. And, you know, a decade ago when I first started coaching and we didn't have a ton of GPS, I could go tell someone to go run this effort or this pace by feel and they'd be pretty close. Nowadays, I have to teach the skill of like running by feel and knowing what different paces and different efforts is, which is something that I didn't have to teach very much at, at the beginning. And I think we, we lose out on that because like your body doesn't care or know if you're running, you know, five minute miles versus five, 10 miles, but it knows the physiological effort that you're putting forth. And if on one day, like five, 10 miles is the best you can do, then that's probably what you need to pay attention to versus like, hey, on a great day, I should run five minutes because my GPS watch or my power meter, or like, you know, my stride monitor tells me I, I should. And I think losing that skill is something that, you know, um, is unfortunate. So how do you prescribe your training uh, when you're when you're out there and you're, you're telling an athlete what to do? Are you doing it by description of effort, perceived effort, yeah, uh, heart rate, pace, like, combination? Yeah, yeah. I I use it depends on the person and their comfort level, but I use effort levels and sometimes like a range of paces. Right? I'll say, hey, this should feel like maybe like five k race pace effort, right? Or for that athlete, um, you know, if we're going on a a what I'd consider a tempo or threshold run, like I describe how it should feel, right? I, I sit there and say, hey, like this, I want you to be like right on that edge, but where you can breathe and say a couple words and being under control without pushing things over. And we have these different like internal effort cues that I describe things on. So I use a combination of both depending on, um, depending on, you know, the athlete. But the other thing that I, I like to do is I like to give some autonomy and control to athletes, right? Because mm -hmm. the worst thing I can do is say, hey, go run this 400 meter repeat in 68. And then they, they run 69. And then the next one, they run maybe 68.5 or 69. And they're just slightly, slightly slow, right? And then they get frustrated because like, hey, I'm not doing this arbitrary pace judgment that 
like I dictate it. Like they need to have autonomy and control to like feel like, okay, this is where that effort level translates into this pace today. And that is totally fine. That is the output, which is great. And uh, tangent, very quickly, I have to take my opportunity. When I have started coaching people that come from a running background as their original sport and they come to me, they love the word tempo. And yet every running runner that has come to triathlon <laughs> has a different definition of tempo. So, so can you tell me what tempo means in your world? <laughs> uh, well, the, the truth is God knows. No one knows. No one has any idea. But, you know, though, again, like, I think this is why vocabulary is, is important for your squad. Like, it doesn't matter what in the world the rest of the world thinks tempo is, right? But it matters that I know what I'm trying to get out of it, and I'm communicating to the athlete sitting across from me that he is. So, like, a lot of times what we use for tempo is is um, is an effort level where, again, you're riding just below what I call that line. Right. Where if you crossed over to the line, you're getting tense, you're stressing, your breathing is getting a little out of control. Um, so we we call it riding just below, you know, below that line where we're we're comfortably hard. Um, we could keep it going for several miles, but maybe not, you know, 12 miles. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of that effort level. It's nondescript in a lot of ways because I expect it to fluctuate. Um based on, you know, what we're doing. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So how do you monitor fatigue? Interesting, we talk about metrics, we're staying in metrics a little bit. It's obviously science versus art. Uh, is, is it coach-led? Is it athlete-led? I'd, I'd love to understand how you track that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I've experimented in the past with, like, monitoring stuff and even even asking, you know, rating fatigue and keeping track of that and all that stuff. But really what, what it comes down to, it comes back to is like, I look at the person across from me, right? See how they're doing in the workout and then listen to their interactions with me. Right. And that sounds very artistic, like for a science-based coach, but like, that's what I do. And then I, then I come back and on my training log, like what works best for me is I, I just rate it from a one through three, right? Was it uh, a subpar day, which means they looked tired, right? They looked more fatigued than I thought, an average day or like a good day where they looked tons of energy, even for the effort. And then I'll just, in most of my training, I'll just like color code it as like red, white or, or green. And then it just jumps out at me. And if I see a bunch of red coming along, I think, oh man, like this athlete's like super, you know, cooked or not in a good space. And it sounds very basic, but like what the reason I do that is because I wanted something that was actionable for me. And when I was measuring, you know, 15 kids or 15 athletes um, data in terms of like their RPE and session RPE and some fatigue stuff, what happened is I as a coach would like, lose track of the data there would be too much staring me in the face and then it wouldn't translate into me actually um applying things right so i i broke it down to a simple level of like what's going to have an impact in terms of me controlling and changing training in response to what this athlete is telling me it's a uh, it's very much aligned or i would say very similar to to my mindset and uh there you go. Two two guys that have master's degree in exercise physiology <laughs> and then uh, lean into the art on on so much of it. It's quite interesting. 
the, the last one, uh, going all the way back actually to your first initiation into the sport of running, uh, pain. And, uh, th- there is no doubt in fact for running is a painful sport. And, yes. and, and, and in so many ways, it's such a pure sport because it is, you're not sitting in on, on a, on a bicycle or sitting in a rowing boat, uh, where obviously you can, you can get into a lot of pain in that. You are against your, the, you know, your body weight and gravity propelling yourself in a, in a very simple <laughs> thing, a pair of shoes. And there's this cardiovascular and muscular pain. I, I'd love to know, how do you talk to your athletes about that in, in managing pain in, in training and racing? Yeah, that's an interesting one because when I was, when I was growing up as an athlete, I thought the solution was to be tough, right? And I thought toughness meant like the better I can deal with pain meant like the more I gritted my teeth, the more I threw up after workouts and races. And that's how I, I define it. But as I've evolved as a a coach and athlete, I, I think that definition is completely wrong. And I think what I try and convey to my athletes now is they need to have the ability to almost have a conversation and acceptance with pain and that that pain is just no different than any other emotion. It's just like a signal. Um, In this case, it's a signal that our effort is increasing. Right. And that we're working hard and, you know, our body is pushing through limits. Yeah. And. That's not, you know, that's not a bad thing. It's just like our body's trying to make sure that like, hey, we don't push beyond and it's going to shut us down before we, you know, push to death or whatever. So I, I try and convey that we need to have this like calm conversation with pain in the sense that almost like a mindfulness, like Buddhist monk style of of when pain happens, when it starts to build, like we don't have these freak out moments where it's like, oh, my gosh, like this is so much pain. I don't know if I can finish this rep or this race or this workout. And instead we kind of just acknowledge it and say, Hey, this hurts. It's supposed to hurt. Right. But I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to, you know, dread and think like, Oh, I can't make it. I'm going to, you know, use that to understand like, Hey, this is where I'm at right now. And like, let me judge my effort throughout the race to try and um, divvy it up so that like the moment I cross the finish line, I'm, I'm, I've spent and used everything I can. And the one thing I would echo to that is when you rely on toughness, toughness leads to tension. And of course, yeah. tension, you know, it's, it's fight, it's tension and, and great power, great, great economy cannot come out of a state like that. Um, that's, that's a brilliant point because like, <laughs> just think about it. Like when you get tough, like you grit down. I mean, that's what I think of. Right. And whether it's in running, you like, you know, get tight and your shoulders come up and you start pumping your arms real hard and maybe put your head down or on the bike. You know, you you're just trying to mash out the wheels like you get tight and you're losing energy. That's a great, great point. It's just the other day I was talking to an athlete who basically toughness is their only tool. And I said, if if toughness is your only tool, the faster and faster you get and the more fatigued you get in a race, the barn doors get thicker and thicker. And so ultimately you can't burst through the barn doors. You've got to think about it in a different way. So it's, it really sort of echoes, uh, much of what we said. Now, the last thing, and, and this is something that's just out of left field. And, uh, but I'm really interested. Uh, there's a, there is substance behind this. Uh, the, one of my least favorite subjects to talk about, but I'm going to ask you about it, but not about the actual topic itself, performance enhancing drugs. Um, 
I'm really interested in how you talk to your athletes about the subject. I, I, I know that you're a strong advocate uh, for clean sport. That, that's very, very clear. But I'd love to know how, how you approach the subject with your team and your professional athletes. How do you communicate about it? You know, number one, I think um, what I am is honest with them, right? I don't try and like sprinkle on some fairy dust and be like, oh, like, you know, no one's doing anything or like this doesn't exist. Like I'm honest with them. I tell them like, hey, here's here's what I know kind of here's here's what, you know, my experience has been in terms of like um, seeing this or like uh, hearing about it at the world level. Um, But I and then I bring it back to what is the point of sport? right? Are, are we trying is all that matters eking out an extra, you know, half a second here or half a second there to, to run well? Or is this the point something greater? And to me, in the message I get, I try and get across to my athletes is that sport is about something greater. And it's about like finding limits, seeing like having something that is, it, innately you know um measurable and seeing how how much we can improve off that and seeing where our limits lie and if you frame it like that then if we're violating our limits artificially um then that's probably not a good a good thing to do right so i i kind of treat it like that and again i'm i have these conversations all the time and i think one of the things that we have to do unfortunately nowadays is is we have to have these conversations and we have to empower athletes to take take control of it and it's not not something that like we should shy away from or it's not something that like we should just hide and be like oh that's someone else's problem or someone else's to deal with i think it's like you know it's your sport what do you want to leave it with yeah i um it's wonderful to hear that and uh i guess it should be my responsibility to to say how I approach it, which is it's in some ways parallel, in some ways a little different. Uh, we, we always start our year with a training camp, typically in Hawaii with, with all of our pros and we all gather around and we sort of set the tone for the year. There's a lot of education, a lot of skills development, and of course some hard training. And at that camp, the first thing that we do setting up our lens and this year we're in Scottsdale in Arizona, the first thing we do is we talk about this subject and um and i start with what's the worth of sport why are we doing this so so very similar to that mm-hmm. uh, and then i actually lay out my stall I, I basically say look it's a non-negotiable which is obvious and i would only hopefully recruit athletes who would have the lens it's non-negotiable uh, and from from here i ask for two things which is you know as a purple patch athlete uh it, it it is a responsibility and a commitment, a contract that that will never enter into their approach with the sport. And, and secondly, while we have to acknowledge that this is happening and you guys will face athletes that are on the other side of the fence, I don't want your energy focused around it. And I don't want you guys to have too many discussions about he said, she said, because you, it's elements that you cannot control. Um, and so, and then finally leaving the open door of, if you want to talk about it, if you need resources to help, because it is ultimately your responsibility to, to actively stay on that side of the fence, which takes some, some thought and obviously some follow up with professional athletes, at least. 
Yeah, and I think one one addition to add on to that is that that belief that athletes can make it to the top doing it the right way and clean, you have to instill that as a coach, right? You have to give examples and show that you can because like we've all seen it where athletes have obsessed over like, oh, so-and-so is doing it, this person's doing it, like I'm never going to have a shot. And I think that's what you're getting at is that, you know, if you obsess over it, then you're not going to, it. coming back to what I said, like you're not going to reach your own true potential. That, that's exactly it. It's 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 out of your control, and you're obsessing yeah. about things that are just distractions and not controllables. Both basically, exactly, hundred percent agree. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so the last thing you didn't know this was going to happen, but uh, we're going to do oh. it. We always have uh, a few questions, quick fire questions. This is going to be most challenging for you, Steve, because the answers to these questions have to be off the cusp, so out of the gut, and they have to be <laughs> short, one word to one sentence. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, it's um, both of us can talk. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I would typically fail in this quick fire round. Uh, eight questions. The same questions come to every guest that we have on the show. You ready? I'm ready. Fasten your seatbelt. Okay, here we go. Number one: What's the biggest challenge that time-starved high performers faced? Recovery. Great question. Great answer. What's your number one performance habit to help daily energy? Um, blocking my time like I would interval training. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Training. This is a good one when you're running. Listening to music, focus on the task or troubleshoot work problems. If I'm an athlete focused on the tra- task, <laughs> if I'm me writing a book, then I'll troubleshoot. There you go. Because it has a different role in your life of, of escapism. Yep. There you go. What do you wish you had more of? Oh, uh, probably time. It's the common one. Training. Fly solo or surround yourself with a crowd? I I love a crowd. I'm with you. Good stuff. All right. Three more. This is a great one for you. Name one to two characteristics of an elite performer. Uh, Passionate and self-aware. All right. Who has been your biggest mentor? Oh, gosh. Um, I would probably come back to my high school coach, Gerald Stewart. He he shaped me in uh, many ways. Awesome. And finally, what's your number one tip for travel? I think it would be getting sleep going into it. It's great. It's it's not easy, is it? <laughs> no, not. In, in your head, you're like, oh, I want to say this, this, and this. And then I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. Pick one. Let's, yeah, that's tough, man. <laughs> but it's good because it, it's, it, it, if I may, it comes back to coaching. It provides a constraint that makes you focus on, okay, what do I actually want to say and what actually matters? There you go. That's a, that's, that's a great last uh, coaching lens. So typically we aim for a conversation 30 to 40 minutes. I think we're cracking 60 and I think we could have talked for another 120. <laughs> so um, 
Steve, thank you. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you being with us and taking time out of, I know, what is a, a hectic and crazy schedule. And um, when's the next book coming out, by the way? <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see. Looking like uh, 2019, maybe, because that's what I do is write books, apparently. But well, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot for having Matt. Really enjoyed this conversation. And um, keep doing what you're doing, man. I uh, I love reading, listening and uh, you know, checking out everything you're doing. You're doing a service to uh, the coaches of the world. And and back in kind to you. Really appreciate it. Good man. All right, good stuff. And uh, from here, we'll sign off. Thanks much, Steve. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Well, that was a special one for me, guys. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from the coaches talk, as I would call it. It's the special source of this show, and I believe that it really highlights the benefit of having a collaborative mindset and sharing ideas so that we can raise the ships on all of the rising tides. Were you intrigued by Steve? You find out and interested of learning more? Read the book. The book, Peak Performance, is by Steve Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S, and Brad Stolberg, S-T-U-R-B-U-R-G. Brad, interestingly, Steve's co-author, he's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks and he's got an equally interesting story and recently announced his own battle with mental illness. That's one of the subjects that we're going to explore when we chat. The book, Peak Performance, it's available at all good booksellers, but hey, why would you go out and buy it when you can win it here? Here's the ask. Here's the simple question. What I want to know, and I want you to email this in to me, what is your single most important habit that helps improve your own personal performance. Tell me, I'll choose the best, and the best can be defined as being refreshing, funny, or powerful, and I just have to share it with everyone. All you need to do, answer that question. What is the single most important habit that helps improve performance? Where do you send it? Info at purplepatchfitness.com. That's info, I-N-F-O, at purple patchfitness.com title of the email peak performance get writing i'll get reading and then we'll announce the winner on next week's show until next time i hope you have a great one enjoy and we'll see you next time cheers this podcast is available on apple podcasts google play spotify stitcher and more we'd love it if you would subscribe rate review and share. Thanks.